condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network. The world for people who think... Hi, and welcome to Behind the Headlines on the South Radio Network. I'm Joe Quinn, and my co-hosts this week, as usual, are Neil Bradley. Hi. Harrison Keeley. Hello. And Alan Martin. Hi, everyone. This week, as you may have noticed, we're going to be talking about the New World Order. No, we're not going to be reading some transcripts of Alex Jones shows. We're talking about the real New World Order, which... Probably most people don't know about, and uh, they probably conflated the two. But there are two types of new world orders uh, that are generally in, in the uh, in popular discourse. One is the conspiracy theory one, as presented by Alex Jones, where it's the globalists who are coming to get us all and uh, you know enslave everybody and create a one world government and put us all in chains and create you know dissolve nation states and under the auspices of the UN. I think uh, that's generally how the, the 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 conspiracy theory version goes. Mm-hmm. But there's been a new world order. The term new world order, I think, that gave rise to that conspiracy theory version of the new world order was uh, probably about maybe 100 years old or so. Started out after uh, the kind of First and Second World War. It was bandied about just as a basically uh, a description of, from the point of view of particularly Western politicians, of how the world uh, would now be changed or uh, how it had changed dramatically, particularly after the Second World War, and uh, how a new order uh, was taking shape and the potentials for that new order to usher in peace and prosperity and an end to war basically uh, uh, for everyone. Um, that was justified, I suppose, uh, when you consider the, the radical changes that happened as a result of the uh, First and Second World War in terms of the, the makeup of the, well, the balance of power, let's say, and the makeup of countries. So many new countries were created as a result of the First and Second World Wars. So, yeah, I mean, it's not unreasonable that people would have thought certain leaders in Western societies would have thought, um, well, this is a new world order, literally. And I suppose literally it was. But it seems that uh, some people have, you know, taken uh, what has happened since then in terms of the U.S. hegemony in the world and the Cold War and the the, the Western powers, particularly, you know, let's say the Anglo-Americans, the British and the Americans uh, pushing to... Um, dominate as much of the world as possible, they've conflated that then with this idea of a super-secret Illuminati elite who's going to uh, control, uh, who's using uh, these changes that happened as a result of the First and Second World War to basically usher in some kind of dystopian future where everybody's going to be enslaved uh, by, um, well, the UN, the Illuminati, the globalists, uh, I don't know, any number of people that you can think of. The Vatican as well. Um, so, yeah, what we want to do just this week was just to look at, uh, to kind of sort out that idea of a new world order because it is bandied about an awful lot and what it actually means, uh, what the people who use the term thought they meant by it and what they supposedly planned and why it hasn't come or hasn't panned out in the way those people, particularly people like um, Woodrow Wilson, maybe one of the first, then Winston Churchill, then later uh, George 
Herbert Walker Bush, uh, dubbed his father around the 1990 mark, um, talked about a new world order, etc. Uh, but apparently there's a very different world order appearing again, seems to be appearing again, or, or, or growing or burgeoning right now at this point. And it doesn't really match up to what these people in Western countries, particularly in America, thought uh, a world order uh, would be like. Uh, so anyway, yeah, we're just going to discuss that and um, the various events that are taking place over the past, uh, have taken place over the past few years. So what's first on the agenda? Did you find uh, the use of the term by by Wilson, mm-hmm. Woodrow Wilson? I couldn't. I, I think he alluded to a new order in terms of a piece, but I don't think he used mm. the term. Did he? Um, maybe not, but I think... He, he, they, there was a lot of people, I mean, talking about it at that, that time, but the people who actually are quoted as having said it, uh, you know, there's only a few that are remembered, but it was, maybe it was because it was such a common concept at the time. But the thing people need to remember is that the idea of a new world order was very common. It was almost self-evident to a lot of people, particularly after uh, the, the Second World War, you know, including, you know, the First World War, the effects of the First World War. Uh, the world had radically changed. Um, I'm not just talking about the remaking of, of, of the balance of power, let's say, or the changes in the balance of power and, and the creation of, of new countries, the fall of empires and the creation, creation of new countries in the Middle East, for example, and in Africa uh, and in India, in the Indian subcontinent. Basically everywhere, uh, new countries were popping up, but there was also the, it, it coincided with uh, a kind of, I suppose, technology modern technology really starting to come uh, fully online uh, for many people. So, yeah, it was a time of great hope and mm-hmm. uh, inspiration and looking to the future uh, where you had uh, nations that had, you know, you had a falling away of the old order of the Russian Empire. Okay, you had it during the Cold War, but particularly in 1991, really Soviet Union collapsing, end of the whole kind of previous centuries uh, dynamic of major empires competing with each other. Now you had basically the West is best with America the lead and technology was going to allow America to take a lead, uh, take the leadership role in the world and basically transform it all for for everyone's benefit. And that's not what happened, in case you haven't noticed. Well, uh, it's interesting because, um, you know, prior to... Um, discussing today's theme, uh, I had only understood the New World Order terminology in terms of the conspiratorial Illuminati, uh, uh, Freemason, uh, bankers, you know, con- conspiracist uh, idea. And, Jews, Vatican. Uh, <laughs> Vatican number one. Uh, but uh, yeah, it, it seems like there were authors like... Um, H.G. Wells, who wrote The Time Machine and um, uh, War of the Worlds, who had actually written a book called The New World Order uh, sometime in the 40s, where he kind of uh, outlined... 1840s or... Uh, no. When was the, he, was he nine, writing that? Late? 1940. 1940. 1940. Okay. Just about, yeah. So, um, and I, I have never read the book. I never even heard about it uh, until I looked it up and um, just kind of skimmed it. And so... Yeah, I mean, he he seemed to be in line with this idea of, okay, now we're kind of uh, uh, reconstituting the world a little bit, and uh, how can we uh, 
uh, have a, a world with uh, with justice and, and no war. Um, and then, of course, you know, a couple of decades later, you have um, Carol Quigley, who wrote Tragedy and Hope, uh, describing um, the, the new world order kind of uh, as a benevolent uh, um, empire. Uh, I'm paraphrasing. So, yeah, the, there are these two kind of parallel ideas that seem to be at play, if I understand it correctly. Uh, one, which is um, that, uh, yes, we, you know, we'll rule the West is best and then we have the power to do it. And uh, but the other is we'll still be an empire and, and we'll still take control of things. But they, they felt that they had to is the thing. Uh, because they had a, we've talked about this a little bit, little bit about this before, but the the kind of schizoidal uh, or kind of psycho declaration, which is actually quite a common, uh, commonly known concept or or um, uh, phrase, let's say in, in in English anyway, which is that uh, you know it's it's a doggy dog it's a doggy dog world, or you know. Kind of every man for himself, or whatever. Um, they, these people who, these, these countries, like I'm talking about, obviously the USA and, and the UK in particular, uh, who emerged victorious, let's say from the, from both first and second world wars, and in a position of dominance, uh, they envisioned this idea, this this had uh, this plan of no more wars. Uh, but from their perspective, how how you, how would you enforce that? Well, somebody has to enforce it, basically. Uh, and the best way to enforce that was by having America as the global policeman, as it's been often often has been accused of, of being, uh, to enforce peace. Because if you don't have someone doing that, well, then history shows that uh, individual nation states will end up fighting with each other. And those 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 you know what starts off as a small kind of conflict between two neighboring countries can spill over into a wider regional war, and it can be you know very bad. <clears throat> so. As far as the Americans are concerned, well, uh, well, the only way to achieve uh, peace in our time uh, in the world was for America as the greatest and strongest country in the world with the biggest military or certainly getting that way in, in, at the end of the Second World War was for them to be the world policeman and police nation states. And many of them actually nation states that had really only uh, come into being uh, Within the past, this is at, I'd say in 1945, there were many nation states, particularly in the Middle East and in Asia and in Africa, that only come into being within the past, like 50, some of them, 30, 20, 30 years. A few, many more of them, less than you know, 50, 50 years old. So this was a very precarious time uh, for these nation states and for this project of world peace. So you really had to have someone overseeing it and uh, making sure that it didn't all go pear shaped. Uh, so that was a, that was their plan. That was the way they were going to uh, usher in this brave new world of peace, <clears throat> peace for all. But well, as we said, mm-hmm. yeah, go ahead. Um, well, so I think you you've already said, well, that didn't happen. I just wanted to ask, could it have happened? And if so, you know, how could it have happened? Like, what went wrong? A bunch of psychos. Yeah. <laughs> but so without the psychos, and w- would that have been possible? Uh, you know, like was, yeah. was so the idea wasn't like crazy from the get go. No, no. Okay. That's why it was actually. That's why you get so many people who supported it. In fact, mm-hmm. uh, at least in, 
in name or in, in terms of the concept, the idea, it certainly wasn't uh, something that many people rejected and they were very willing to give this new superpower uh, a chance to prove mm-hmm. itself. But very quickly, <laughs> they, they, they showed, uh, you know, bit by bit, uh, they showed countries that, uh, well, it wasn't all just about, you know, prosperity and peace for everybody. It was more about, well, I mean, when you find yourself in that position, you know, of, of being being able to dictate terms and, and effectively, you know, force people to to jump uh, on your order. Well, yeah, if you're not uh, fairly clean psychologically, if you've got some, you know, pathological traits there, you're gonna you're gonna exploit and abuse that, you know. Uh, right. And that's what happened increasingly. There. And then once you start down that path, you entrench yourself in that kind of a, a dynamic, you know, where you're basically forcing people to to abide by your by by your by your rule. Your law, what you say, and, and if it becomes more about your own self-interest than about helping other people, well, then you're going to have to force those people more and more. Uh, but all the strange thing is that all the while you're still maintaining a facade mm-hmm. of a of a kind of you know American peace and Papax Americana, you know that that ultimately is good for everybody, you know. So it's like while you're beating them, they're saying this is hurting me more than it's hurting you, and this is for your own good and stuff like that, you know. All yeah. of these like classic classic pathological statements that are almost common. You know, the part of the common parlance these days is uh, really apply this to to America. You know, mm-hmm. and the people, a lot of the people saying them don't don't even realize that uh, that basically they're lying. They're like they're unintentionally lying because they they think they're telling the truth. Of course, there are the the pathologicals who know exactly what they're doing, and uh, it's just yeah. a manipulation tactic for them. But uh, well, the way I when you were saying that, I, w- I was thinking uh, it's it's almost like a a perfect example of um, demonic possession. But when I mean by that, not real demonic possession, it's just like a similar dynamic, even just a way that, you know, whether or not you believe in demonic possession, just even the way it's presented in movies or, you know, books about it. But there's this like this small infection, this opening that if not corrected at an early point will Mm -hmm. kind of inevitably then lead to kind of a full blown, um, you know, demonic takeover of the, the organism and so right. right after, well, even during World War II, um, you know, in the in the mainstream history books, you never hear about all the bad things the Allies did. But, mm-hmm. you know, right there, usually in any war, but, um, you know, particularly in World War II, there's, there's, you know, gross atrocities on both sides. And when those get, when that, well, and those atrocities, uh, you know, a lot of them have their root in some kind of pathology. Well, Lobachevsky would argue that any um, any atrocity, any kind of like uh, gross violence to another person, any type of type of over the top, you know, violation of another person's, um, you know, either body or free will or whatever, is rooted to some degree in pathology. And so, when you have that going on to a large degree, and it is then well, it is not acknowledged, and it is then covered up to a degree, then it mm. can only kind of um, you know, continue to infect that that organism. Um, in this case, you know, a nation or even a, a collection of nations. And so, in World War II, we had you know the just the the wanton destruction of of all uh, you know tons, tons of Europe of Europe, entire cities. Uh, you know, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, um, the, the torture, the all of the um, and even in the post-war period, then we had the kind of recruitment and co-opting of ex-Nazis. You know, well, they were still Nazis when they were recruited, um, you know, ex-Nazis in name. 
And this constant kind of, um, I'd say, bending of the rules or kind of, you know, well, you know, we didn't like Nazis, but it's just something we got to do, kind of means justify and justifies the means. And then by the time you get to the Vietnam War, you've got Project the Phoenix Program, um, which is just like, I mean, you, you could have taken that straight out of, um, you know, the Gustavo handbook or the, the KGB handbook. I mean, it was just um, these kind of things under the surface, um, which aren't, aren't visible to the general public, like immediately. A lot of these, well, they happen in secret and a lot of them are covered up for a long time and never revealed. That ha It's kind of like this internal infection that you never quite see, but it just keeps eating away at the body and expanding and growing to the point where you get um, primarily like the intelligence services and um, and their connections with business, media, and government. Um, and you get to the point where we are today where there is a, a deep state, which is not necessarily a bad thing, because um, you need you know you need permanent government, you need continuity um, in order just to keep things functioning. But you have a deep state that has this kind of infection, which no one can see. And then, so not only can do people not even know it exists, but it has kind of it it really holds the reins of power. And there's not much you can do about it when a you're not aware of it, and b you know it is so much more powerful than uh, than anyone else. And it's right. Rooted in although, yeah. right. Although the deep state and the deep state is, I think, is a bad thing in the sense that it's only come to light recently with Trump. Let's say into into let's say into the public awareness to whatever extent, mm -hmm. and more more people are aware of this idea of a deep state, and it's focused on America. But uh, that deep state has existed for a long time in the U.S., and it's a bad thing in the sense that it's it's secret, it's covert. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah they're the ones who are really pulling strings and pushing the policy and uh, they're not being open about it. Right. Uh, it's not, it's not subject to public, uh, public um, kind of, you know, approval, let's say to one extent or another. Uh, whereas, but you said it's, it's important because you do need some kind of continuity and you can't just have someone come on a different administration coming along every four years. Um, but when you look at Russia, for example, uh, you have, there's there's not really a deep state in Russia because you have continuity <clears throat> in Russia and and Russia is, is widely criticized for uh, its its continuity of government which is in the form of Putin and whoever well Medvedev uh, as the prime minister or president just switching back and forth for the last almost 20 years you know that that's what you need and that's why Russia has been able to progress and the world has progressed because they've had consistency of government and of course, they're called. It's, they're, they're accused of being dictatorship, you know. When <clears throat> well, they're not a dictatorship, obviously, because they apparently have uh, the approval. They're upfront about it to to the, to the greatest extent that that they can be, and they have the approval of the public uh, for that. Whereas in America, you have this nonsense of every four or eight years or whatever, you know, a president coming along who's basically just a, a spokesperson, you know, and, and there's a deep state behind the scenes and everybody looks at the president and, talk, and, and listens to what he says and he says all the, all the nice, plausible things, blah, 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 uh, when in fact they're doing something very differently behind the scenes. Uh, the deep state is, let's say, and the president is just a, a spokesperson. He's, the president of the US is there to simply bamboozle and confound the population of America to make sure that they don't really know what is being done in America's name and how America actually rules the world uh, or has attempted to rule the world. Um, and that's not a good thing, you know, because it's, it's, it's not subject, like I said, to, to public 
approval. Public aren't the public are definitely not part of the equation. They're not part of the process. Therefore, it's fundamentally undemocratic. The, the extent that democracy was ever or is ever a, a, a workable idea, where you have you know millions, millions and millions, or hundreds of millions of people all supposedly meant to uh, agree on something, you know, to the extent that it's even workable, uh, it's it's not. It, it's been. A, it's been. It's never been uh, practiced, or it hasn't been practiced in, in the U.S. In, in a very long time, uh, because you have unelected, most of them, I'd say, unelected officials uh, in government, behind the scenes, maybe not even in government, not even officially in government, uh, running the show. And meanwhile, you have this front company called the Office of the President, <clears throat> who just uh, talks a lot of nonsense, you know. And that's why you had so much upheaval over over trump recently you know because trump came along and tried to actually do the 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 take control and and be the president and and tell people what he's going to do and then do that and they freaked out about it because it's like that's not the way this works what the hell are you doing that's that, ha- that opens the door to chaos right yeah well that's In what they're they yeah they, they're really convinced of that and um, it's not just because they politically don't like trump they really are like hardwired to freak out yeah and the only the only real explanation for why they would have such a bad uh, response to, to to that idea of, of a of a president kind of leveling with the people and doing what he says is because what they do is not something that they can really level with the public about. Mm. Russia, on the other hand, as as the opposition to that, can level with the public because basically what Russia is doing is fundamentally good, is fundamentally. A moral thing to do, which is opposing, for example, the Americans. I mean, it's just ridiculous. There's you know? a famous quote attributed to George Bush Sr. Um, apparently told behind closed doors off the record to a journalist mm-hmm. in which he says, well, Marty, or whatever the guy's name was, if the American people knew what we really get up to, he said they, there'd be a revolution tomorrow or they'd run us out of town or something like that. They'd be chasing us down the streets or something <laughs> yeah, like that. They'd be, yeah. 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 And whether or not he actually said that or not, it's very true. <laughs> uh, although they've done a lot to try and offset the possibility of that ever happening by making sure the American people have no clue whatsoever yeah. about what really goes on. Yeah. And they're just distracted by Obama dancing on the Ellen Show or, you know, uh, George W. Bush standing on an aircraft carrier saying mission accomplished. I mean, so much theatrics, you know, and nonsense, you know. It's amazing that these people cannot, uh, that American pe- the American people uh, don't get it. I mean, look what America has been doing for the past six years in Syria. They're actively, uh, like there's tons and tons of hard evidence to show, not just hard evidence, but uh, if you don't like your hard evidence, you don't even need hard evidence because you can say, well, maybe it's a faked document or maybe the Russians are lying, whatever. But just look at the circumstantial evidence that proves the hard evidence that's available, that the Americans have been supporting jihadi terrorists. You know those people that everybody hates? Everybody in the West hates, well, apart from all the lefty liberals, but who now love them. But uh, those jihadis that everybody hates because they chop your head off and want to impose Sharia law, America, the government, the, the deep state, on your behalf, Americans, has been supporting those people to the hilt. They've been funding, arming, training them. And, you know, I mean, it's amazing uh, that that no one, no one knows that, you know. Uh, apparently no one is up in arms about it. No one... Uh, does anything about it? What what can people do? I think it's it's unofficially entertained in 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 the public thought. It, they don't get official sanction to think those things. And one of the bizarre consequences of it is that it breeds a culture of paranoia and, ironically, conspiracy theory, which feeds into 
the blackest versions of the NWO conspiracy theory, mm-hmm. um, where it's, you know, sacrificing kids at the Owl of Moloch, um, flying the next day to sign off on killing lots of people in this brown country, mm. to sending in foreign troops down downtown Austin the day after that. You know, it, it breeds this partially reality-based, but also substantially fantasy-based paranoia. Um, and, and that in itself is, in, when that then takes hold in the population, it's extremely infectious. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it's, it's, it's true in, in a, it's almost like the, this, the, the conspiratorial new world order of the Illuminati and uh, the Vatican and the Jews and whoever else, blah, blah. It's almost like people, it's, it, people have mythologized an actual truth there. You know, the people have tried, the conspiracy theorists have tried to put, uh, build a narrative. Uh, around it, you know, tell a story because it's uh, most of it is covert. They try to bring it out into the public awareness by telling a story about here's how it happens. You know, and they they make it as dramatic and uh, as scary as possible because it is dramatic and scary in 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 the way it actually happens. But it's rather more mundane <clears throat> than you know uh, just before they decide to launch a war that they would go and have a a séance or something in front of Moloch or something and and, and sacrifice a goat. Uh, uh, you know, maybe that happens with some weirdos or whatever, but I don't think any of these people are necessarily doing that in that way, in that ritualized way, you know. Uh, they're simply going about the business of attempting to control as much of the world's resources as possible because of their insatiable greed uh, and all of their actions and all of their energy is, is put, uh, is, is given towards that that goal. And they do it largely unconsciously because that's simply yeah. who these people are. That's That's, I mean... They're 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 insanely greedy. They they have a sickness. Uh, that infection you're talking about, Harrison, is, is is they're infected with their own greed, and there's nothing they can do about it. They're like basically like just well, kind of tuned machines. Basically, the, the origins of NWO as um, Illuminati, All Seeing Eye, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, is apparently attributed to a late 19th century Fundy Christian British guy. It was in Ireland, actually, when he was a preacher, and then maybe an emigrate to the States. His name was John Nelson Darby. Um, so it, it's got a fundy Christian, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant origin. And this, I mean, this guy, <clears throat> I've read different critiques about him. I mean, but there's quite a bit of it available about him online. Um, it's It's basically the origins of, m- more than that, it's the origins of the rapture theory. Rapture theology is kind of termed, um, which is uh, it's which doesn't have really any basis in the Bible at all. It was kind of invented out of whole cloth. A few it has a few little biblical tidbits that is built around, but uh, th- there's no biblical basis for rapture theology slash new world order as you know the Antichrist. Um, but it, it proliferated big time in the U.S. and it began, began in the late 19th century. Joe described it earlier as a period of hope, you know, for new ideas and change. And it was that, but it was also a period of some seriously dark, <laughs> occultic, mm. ritual uh, obsession. Um, because inevitably, when you start to reach for these abstract higher planes, weird stuff comes in mm. at the same time, you know. Um, so... Yeah, that's just a side note, really. But 
that it's that it's that kind of um it it's the the recurring thing about the use the term new world order and similar big ideas um world war 1 it's natural that that would be on people's mind and that it would be verbalized by the US president at the time Woodrow Wilson in his 14 points plan for international peace it's natural then that FDR would also use the term or at least a similar approximation during World War II. Again, global catastrophe is broken out. We have to deal with this. And that gave rise. First one gave rise to League of Nations. That didn't work. Second, United Nations. Um, and then another kind of inflection point in the chronology of the 20th century is the fall of the wall in Berlin, uh, end of the USSR, a nearly regime change in China. That's 1989, 1990. When that's when the most famous use of the term "new world order" comes in. That's George Bush Senior using it in a speech after, I think, announcing the end of the Persian Gulf War. Um, and it's the one that's most used. People hold up as the proof that you know the globalists mm. are. But if you listen to the speech, um, we have a clip of it. We want to play it. It's. Yeah, we've got the two clips. One, I'm not sure which is which. One, it looks like it's a presidential um, kind of, what are they called? Like broadcast, he's on, he's in his office. And then one's the speech he's giving, like looks like in front of Congress or the Senate or something. Yeah. Which one, one do we want to go with? One is the, 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 the one in the Senate. Nation. Okay. Which, by oh. the way, I think was actually made on uh, um, 1990, September 11th, exactly 11 years before 9-11. Mm. Mm. All right, let's... I think it was 91, exactly. Yeah, 91. Yep, 10 years. Or 10 years. Certain that we stand at a defining hour. Halfway around the world, we are engaged in a great struggle in the skies and on the seas and sands. We know why we're there. We are Americans, part of something larger than ourselves. For two centuries, we've done the hard work of freedom, and tonight we lead the world in facing down a threat to decency and humanity. What is at stake is more than one small country. It is a big idea, a new world order, where diverse nations are drawn together in common cause, to achieve the universal aspirations of mankind, peace and security, freedom and the rule of law. Such is a world worthy of our struggle and worthy of our children's future. If it is possible, I want to continue to build a lasting basis for U.S.-Soviet cooperation for a more peaceful future for all mankind. The triumph of democratic ideas in Eastern Europe and Latin America and the continuing struggle for freedom elsewhere, all around the world, all confirm the wisdom of our nation's founders. Tonight, we work to achieve another victory, a victory over tyranny and savage aggression. Wow. I mean, what's, you know, you can't help but listen to that and, and recall 
uh, the, the, the sheer number <laughs> of, of dirty tricks and, uh, and, um, alliances that George Bush senior had made, uh, and his dad, um, with, uh, with Noriega, with, uh, Saddam Hussein, with, with all kinds of, of people in the oil business and in, in drug trafficking. I mean, this guy, um, this, this guy is the, the, the kind of political deep state poster child for, uh, exactly the opposite of what he just said. What were you going to say, Neil? Well, imagine for a second, you didn't know any of that. Mm-hmm. Peace, security, freedom, and the rule of law, free, yeah. freedom from savage tyranny. Who on the planet, at least in terms of groups like countries of people, would possibly disagree with that? He's right. It is a big idea. It is the idea of this general epoch the last hundred years. It's been the same recurring idea. Everyone, it's on everyone's mind. It's like we're all so interconnected. We've got the communications technology. We've got the global trade. Everyone, it, it, it's, it's there. It is begging to come to fruition. And he, I, I think Bush is, as, if, if you, the only thing I would say with that speech, if you could just try to, if you cut out the, the references to U.S. exceptionalism, you're left with a great speech that could be said by Xi Jinping or Vladimir Putin, in fact, which are said mm-hmm. at the U.N., on an annual basis now, or whatever other form they're speaking at. Hmm. It just depends on, on who, who's saying it yeah. and what their, what their intention is. The distinction it. is between the abstraction, the reaching for the realization of that ideal, the abstraction and the reality, the idea and the fact. Hmm. Um, well, it's, if it's, ultimately, if it's said by someone who, uh, or a nation, or a group of, uh, the leadership of a nation, uh, that are fundamentally interested in their own uh, kind of uh, their own power and influence and, and well-being uh, to at the expense of others if necessary. Well, obviously, it's not going to. You're not going to. It's just all hot air, basically. You're not. You're not going to actually be able to achieve anything that you say you want to achieve. But of course, these people have narratives running where where they think that. Well, listen, if it's good for me, it's good for everybody. You know, it's just it comes down to very basic psychology that any kind of psychology graduate would be able to identify as, as kind of a fairly common or well-known aspect of, of human nature, you know. But the problem is that w- within these people in positions of power, it's just, you know, kind of supercharged. And, uh, and as far as he was concerned, you know, his vision for the world was that America, it's very easy for someone in that position. Uh, in, in what he was, it was 1991, the Soviet Union just collapsed. There was no one. No one left. You know, China was basically still a backwater. Uh, Europe was pretty much under under American control. South America had been had a few coups here and there, whatever. It was still it's still in, in turmoil to one extent or another, and only and, and, and existed really largely at America's uh, pleasure. So yeah, in 1991, America looked around the world and saw no one uh, able to compete with them. Many nations in a in a in a, in a, in a situation of of economic kind of um, uh, you know, kind of regression, and America, and yet, America standing able to dispense its freedom and democracy goodies on the whole uh-huh. world, but that's a position of really of supreme power where you would be able to take terms, to, to take terms, and you would, to a certain extent, you would, you would think you would think to yourself, well, if I'm in this position, it must mean that I'm doing something right, right? 
I mean, if I'm the last man standing after a fight, that means I won, right? That means what I stand for, that what I embody, what I what I espouse is the best thing. But uh, of course, they overlook, as you were saying, uh, Alan and and Harrison as well, overlook the, the, the kind of dirty tricks and the manipulations that were involved in getting them to that position. You know, so you're really talking about a, a problem of, of nature. You know, uh, a very fundamental contrast between or or, or nature or um, a, con- a difference in nature between someone who uh, genuinely wants the world to be a better place and does not have an overweening uh, self-interest and is has a sense of morality eff- effectively or sen- sense of a, a conscience where uh, fair play is very important to them and you know they they constitutionally internally they they would not be able to you know just kind of bump off assassinate kill murder a person or a bunch of people to to achieve their their grand goal they don't see the contrast between the words they say for example this wonderful benevolent, benevolent new world order uh, where there's peace for everybody they don't see the contrast between that and then them also saying well we're going to have to get rid of that later and we're going to have to start a revolution over there and have a coup over there. They think that's all. There's no, there's no, there's no contradiction between those two ideas mm-hmm. because they're just, like I said, they're just kind of machines. They're like, they're just running a program, and there's no real self-reflection. There's no genuine self-reflection or no genuine kind of conscience uh, or even consciousness in a certain sense that uh, would allow for that uh, that kind of deeper thinking or deeper analysis of the situation infused by a sense of some sense of morality or some sense of decency you know uh, there's only self-interest mm. and nothing else but of yeah. course in terms of convincing the world that they would be much better off with your help and uh, becoming kind of vassals or taking uh, playing second fiddle in a in a new American century um you have to say all the right things to convince those people of that. So it's a seamless manipulation that goes on, I think. I don't think these people consciously plot and scheme, you know, in the sense of that they know that they're bullshitting people. Mm. They think that there's no contradiction between their grand plan for the world and peace around the world and what they have to do to achieve that, i.e. that other commonly used and known phrase here, have to break a few eggs to make an omelette. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> not, a, not at the grand grand level of ideas, but when it, on a case-by-case basis, on a spe- in a specific situation, I think uh, their key functionaries, it could be CIA or whatever, or Pentagon officials, dealing with any one issue, Nicaraguan yesterday, Syria today, they probably are aware that they're sabotaging, say, a, a peace process because and they'll come up with narratives for why it's in their, in everyone's interest to do so, not just theirs, but they're aware that they are doing evil, breaking a few eggs. Like I think, I think, yeah, but even breaking a few eggs to make an omelette can be justified as necessary, right? Because ultimately you're making an omelette and everybody likes omelette, right? <laughs> Unless you're allergic to eggs. But, which a lot of people around the world are these days. <laughs> uh, allergic well, to it's, it's America, interesting. America's geopolitical omelette. Uh, but no, I was just going to say that um, these, uh, it's now, like you're saying, Neil, it's getting to the point where it's very, it's more and more difficult for these people to 
spin a narrative as to why they're doing what they're doing uh, and, and to see it as, as ultimately for the greater good, that they have to do these things for the greater good. You know, when, when Russia is there and Russia is able to stand on its own and, and doesn't need any help, basically, and is, is trying to help other countries in its, in its region, and America is coming in and lighting fires and burning the place down, well, how do you really, at what point, I mean, that's where you get a kind of, that's where, where psychos go crazy. If they're not crazy already, they start to lose the plot. You know, they start to actually, their own narrative that has kind of sustained them, their own kind of uh, narrative where they, where they tell themselves they're doing good, even though they're doing evil, when it becomes really obvious to even to them, uh, and it's certainly becoming more obvious to the rest of the people in the world that these people aren't acting in, in the best interest of, of, of anybody except themselves, and they're and actually working against the interests of other people in that process. Uh, they start to, well, they start to not make any sense, you know, anymore. Their, their narrative starts to break down because it doesn't make any, it, it, it's, you know, there's, there's this pushback from other people that, that uh, challenges that narrative and exposes it as, uh, for what it is, which is just pure self-interest. And then they, they, ultimately, the curtain gets pulled back. Those people basically have to say, well, I don't care. I'm going to do it anyway. You know, and and then we start to expose themselves. And I think that's the kind of process we're in right now, the time we're in right now, where um, because their narrative is is coming undone uh, and the truth behind that narrative that has always always existed is is when it's, because it's being challenged by other countries in the world, by major nations in the world, it's being exposed for what it is. It's being stripped away. All the dross and fluff is being stripped away. And what you're seeing is just increasingly is these people in, in, in the West, in America in particular, uh, having to make statements that are just naked, statements of naked greed and self-interest, you know. Um, of course, there's a period of when they're lying. I suppose it was always a lie. But way back, you know, years ago, decades ago, the lie was more plausible, more believable. Now it's becoming just <clears throat> more and more like naked lies, you know, unvarnished lies that are being uh, told and uh, more and more people are, are able to see them for what they are. So, uh, but they're still really doing the best they can. And that's where the media comes in, where the media is their backup plan, where it's like, well, just have the media say exactly the opposite. You know, previously it was the media would just spin the story a little bit, but now the media is required to just basically say exactly the opposite. Well, they do a few things. They actually ignore stories completely. So leave it out completely. But if necessary, say exactly the opposite of what is actually happening. And that's the only way you can keep the keep the freedom and democracy narrative going. But it's got it's going it's got it's coming close to an end point. You know, there has to be an end point to that. Yeah. I mentioned a couple of shows back that the Russians have started airlifting in um inviting and airlifting Western journalists to follow them, Aleppo and most recently Derazor. Um, so I watched a BBC report of of their man on this, and no matter no matter how he tried to put a slant on it, a negative slant, a negative slant, the, it ends up being a glowing report about right. Russia, yeah. one way or the other. The the reality in his camera, what he's seeing, what he's reporting, right, what the facts he has to report because <coughs> they're just they're, they're what he sees, not because he's like, okay, this is the fact. Oh, now I have to calculate how to change it. No, he's just reporting mm-hmm. as a reporter. He's being objective. Mm-hmm. He has been forced to become objective. And through no real struggle on his part of right. conscience, it's just the changing nature of 
in this case, a microcosm maybe well, of what can become a bigger world thing, but a specific situation yeah. in Syria. In the interest of not embarrassing himself, those reporters are put in positions where they, they they would have to fundamentally embarrass themselves and expose themselves as being blatant liars if they didn't actually report the truth when they're put in those positions. Because the truth is is, is unveiling itself, and it's all because of this other world order that is imposing itself, that has pushed back against America's Pax Americana or global, America as a global policeman. Uh, people have pushed back against that. Major countries have pushed back against that, and it's exposing it for what it is. And if reporters go to, in the, in the rare occasion that they do actually go to to places, I mean, these days in Syria and the Middle East and stuff, when there's uh, in conflict zones, you don't really see uh, many. Yeah, because many because Western NATO wasn't airlifting them in. Right. Because then they'd see right and, and ask questions. Right. And and that would affect the narrative negatively. Right. And also because, or uh, Russia, uh, and also China, uh, having English language. Media outlets like RT and uh, China, C, was it CGN, there's a couple, CCTV. They're putting people there on the scene, you know, and and, and providing reports. And uh, you can't really argue with that. You can't just, you can't, the BBC couldn't respond to like an RT journalist being in uh, Deir Azor, for example, uh, saying exactly how it is and filming the situation there. And the BBC couldn't go ahead and put in a new. Uh, one of their own reporters and say, uh, "No, what are you going to do? Are you going to stage manage some like? Oh, how are you going? To, how are you going to convert the reality that was presented by RT into its opposite in a BBC, in a BBC report? You know, you're not able to do that. So therefore, they're kind of hoisted on their own petard in a certain sense. You know, they're they're, and that's what happens when you tell lies all the time. You know, uh, eventually, um, you can't maintain it anymore. You know." Uh, you can maintain the lie. I mean, you can you can massage the truth and you can spin stories, blah 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 blah. But when a new reality, when the re- the actual reality starts to 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 manifest itself as a result of other forces interceding, um, well, there's nothing you can do about it, you know. And but that's you know, I don't know. Well, and you can see that in the in the tabloids too. Like I've noticed in recent weeks. There have been several articles. One just that I saw yesterday was, I think it was from The Sun, the UK Sun. And it was about this uh, this video that's come online of filmed, you know, GoPro video from some ISIS jihadis in in Syria, probably around Deir Azur, but we don't know for sure where it was filmed. And the headline is like, watch the Syrian army smash these, jihadi, these ISIS jihadis to smithereens or, you know, something like that. And I was just thinking, like, even... A year, two years ago, you never would have seen a headline like that um, because, first right. of all, it, it admits that the Syrians are fighting ISIS, which for a long time they weren't. You know, Syrian army isn't fighting ISIS. The Russians aren't bombing ISIS. Well, that's debatable. Um, they always were, but, of course, the, the original focus was on the, you know, the the regions where the Syrian army actually was and had the most immediate <clears throat> um, you know, defense needs. But putting all that aside... The it's like the, this is a report you would have seen um, about the Americans. Ideally, you know, for for Western media, Americans or the British or the French or whatever, whoever's involved at any given point in this U.S. coalition. And but no, it's the Syrian army who have been uh, you know totally demonized and vilified for years. But they're the ones you know killing ISIS. So I guess now 
it's like a begrudging admittance that these are the good guys now because because they're killing evil terrorists. Um, mm-hmm. I just thought it was kind of uh, kind of funny. And not only in the Sun, but you're also getting uh, pieces from like uh, AP and Reuters that that are kind of forced to acknowledge at this point uh, just what you said, Harrison, that uh, that the Syrian Arab uh, army as well as the Russian forces are now fighting. Uh, ISIS and and that they are um, by default the good guys. Um, but uh, I did just want to get back to something you said a little earlier, Joe, about this kind of seamless tran- transition. Um, if George uh, W. Um, or Herbert Walker, Papa Bush Senior, uh, was was one of the bigger kind of proponents of the New World Order idea or vision, um, it seems with few exceptions that. Uh, except for like guys like Kissinger who write books and, and include the idea uh, in their books and then get uh, and then get um, uh, lauded by people like Hillary Clinton. The, the very term has kind of subsided a little bit in political discourse, I, I think, in the past 20 years. But uh, even if the term has has kind of been sidelined, you still had people like Samantha Power writing these books uh, that basically uh, call for the same thing, which is the U.S. being the world policeman. Um, and you had Barack Obama uh, in his speech, I think it was either just before or after Putin's famous U.N. speech of uh, a couple of years ago, where Putin says, you know, look at what you've done, United States. Look at how you've messed things up in Libya and now Syria. By, by supporting opposition groups. And o- Obama, uh, you know, he didn't have to say new world order, uh, but it was there. It was laden in everything he said that the U.S. was doing all these great things and, and wouldn't tolerate uh, uh, bullies and, and, um, and the law of the jungle. Uh, I'm paraphrasing. As, as Bush put it in one of his new world order speeches, uh, that the U.S. is for democracy. So, um, you know, the, the narrative is is still there. Uh, it may be that for branding and, and uh, message purposes, uh, people are being told, you know what, y- you can drop the New World Order line a little bit. We have too many people being critical. Well, you know, I think I've, I'm sure that I've seen it in like the last two years uh, from big political figures. I can't remember for sure, for sure who I've, seen say it trump may have even said it you know in the lead up to the to the election i was wondering about that and, and thought that he might have said it in a kind of critical context well no it was no no, no it's always said in a in a positive context because okay. whenever it's in a negative context then it's like uh, then you're it's then you're a conspiracy theorist but so i but no i i have heard it recently in you know mainstream political discourse but maybe not as often as it you know used to be bandied about Mm. Yeah, it, it, it's a perpetual idea. Mm-hmm. It's it's in the U.S. It goes back to manifest destiny, mm. um, and there there is some underlying basis for it. I mean, the U.S. became very powerful quickly. Um, it took another. It was a while. It wasn't until World War One that it became hegemonic, like a superpower above all others. Um, so it took circumstances and. Um, time for it to become a reality, but it's, the idea has been there 
for a long time, and it it did give birth to um, substantive changes in reality. I mean, the U.S. political system, democracy, the rule of law, uh, capitalism. I mean, the freedom to trade, the freedom to have your own business. They they did win out over the communist system. Of course. Um, the only the only way America or any country could have achieved the position that America has done is with a really good sales pitch. Uh, and by a really good sales pitch, I mean one that was kind of automatically self-evident to most people in the world and that most people understood as, as being positive and a good idea. Uh, and they, they, they achieved a lot on the basis of, of that really good idea. But behind the good idea was a very dark face, you know? There wasn't the the kind of moral backbone to support it. It was just it was basically just all words. You know, it may have been uh, there may have been good intentions. Maybe you know, going back you know, seventy, eighty, ninety, a hundred years when the first when, when the idea was first uh, you know thought of or whatever. Or there may have been people in the past long ago who had a similar idea of you know changing the world, different empires, or whatever, or, or you know spreading their uh, their ethos around the world. It may have been. You know, well intentioned, but the problem is whenever you've got whenever you've got uh, psychopathy and psychopathic uh, personalities involved in it, well, it's destined to go uh, to really bad places. But just looking at um, looking at what America is doing today um, in different places, just just to kind of bring it up to up to date, uh, the kind of uh, we can we can maybe anal- present an analysis or a kind of a state of the State of the Union, or State of the Global Empire address, you know, where we're at right now and what we're doing. Um, this is going to need a theme tune. For, for, but but without, without, without the BS, basically. Okay. Emperor Joe Quinn. The Imperial Guard. No, but this is an analysis of it, and it's um, the State of the Empire right now, if you just look at what's actually happening. Uh, they're pretty desperate. I mean, just last week there you had uh, the Russians conducted uh, military exercises, Zapad drills in, in uh, Belarus. And leading up to it, the NATO Secretary General, that kind of little, little tin pot, beady-eyed, beady-eyed warmonger, Kind of self-interested douchebag. Uh, he, um, like like his predecessor, I would mind. I think that must be a a, a job, a requirement for yeah. filling that job. You have to be of a certain personality type, and it's not a very admirable one. You know, there's something very uh, kind something of, Eichmann-like about them. Yeah, something very you know sniveling and and, and you know ugh, nasty people. Um, and they're picked obviously by the Americans to to to, to present uh, in that way to the to the world. Or present uh, NATO slash America's intentions, but you had him and other people, uh, uh, other politicians, leaders of European countries, and and the Americans as well, and their media, claiming that this was that these drills, Zapad drills, were going to involve not the thirteen thousand troops that Russia had said were going to be involved, but a hundred thousand, and in fact it was cover for an invasion of. Uh, Eastern European 
uh, states or, or maybe, you know, Estonia, who knows? Uh, Poland, Poland, maybe, who knows? Any number. You can never know with those Russians. They could invade anywhere at any minute. So this is 100,000 that's going to be. That's what they claim. They just pulled this figure out of nowhere, right? And then the media duly reported it. Uh, and of course, Russia had no intention of having 100,000. They intended to have what they said, 13,000 troops. It was uh, regular drills and or exercises, and that, that, that was it. And they took place, and it was over. And then the media and Stoltenberg and all of the Western politicians, well, they just basically didn't say anything. But a few media articles, one in The Independent, actually uh, addressed that point much to their uh, to their uh, credit, I suppose. Uh, it's very, it's bizarrely creditworthy that they would actually address uh, this glaring propaganda that they that they presented about Russia planning these massive drills and you know planning a, an invasion of Eastern Europe. They they said, well, you know, it seems like this was NATO fake news. This independent article basically said it was NATO had put out some fake news on this, and I commented on it and said, yeah, but you repeated it, you bunch of freaking idiots. You know, I mean, are you trying to excuse yourselves as well? Because it was self, it was pretty evident to everybody that it was BS when it was being said. But you actually, in the, in the Independent and, and the BBC and everybody else <clears throat> in the Western press, repeated it as if it was a really plausible idea that Russia was going to uh, have some covert invasion of, of Eastern Europe uh, under cover of these exercises. And that's not what happened. And now they're over, and not, nothing happened. So, have you got anything to say? Would you, Would you like to address the fact that you just, you know? For about a week or more, you just disseminated massive amounts of BS, uh, totally made up. Uh, we have to we'd have to conclude that it was consciously and deliberately made up because you had no evidence whatsoever for claiming that this was the case, but you claimed it anyway. And now that it didn't happen, and you're proved to be wrong, not that, and it's not so much that you're proved to be wrong; you're proved to be a bunch of conscious, deliberate, lying a holes. Would you like to say anything in response? No, not much, really. No. We'll just move on to the next exercises and say the same thing about them. Now, why are they doing that? Why is America, because as NATO was fear-mongering and, and particularly the Brits and stuff were fear-mongering about this and, you know, the, those idiot lackey, uh, those, those Polish politicians, uh, um, I mean, don't even ask me about them, but uh, and, and this, the Nordics and stuff. Uh, why were they doing that? Or why was it coming from America? Why was America, why is America continuing with this hysterical, Russian fear-mongering. When it's obvious at this point, I mean, how long are they going to go on with it for? Before, I mean, they think they're going to bait Russia and they're going to frustrate Russia so much that Russia says, okay, we're going to do what you've been claiming we're going to do all along. Well, Russia's not going to do that. So at what point are you going to shut the hell up about that? Well, apparently you're not because you had no reason for doing it in the first place. It was a complete fabrication from the very beginning. It was a propaganda campaign from the beginning. Why? Well, it's to justify continued uh, are reinforced, in fact, U.S. military presence in Europe and diplomatic or political uh, pressure and uh, kind of a control of European politics. Uh, so they're using that, using the Russian hysteria for to that end. Now, why do they want to do that? Because they are actually they are actually hysterical about Russia. They are very afraid of Russia. Uh, what they're afraid of is that America will be pushed out of Europe politically and then eventually physically, uh, well, politically, economically, and then physically, they will be pushed out of Europe. Europe will fall to Russia. 
but not as a result of any kind of Russian machinations or Russian kind of covert plans, although they'd probably claim that. I mean, the bizarre situation is that if it, if it happens in the future where America is basically mostly leaves Europe uh, in terms of, let's say, their militaries leave Europe, their military bases are, are kind of dismantled and they leave Europe, and politically, a lot of the countries in Europe turn towards Russia and economically, they turn towards Russia. Without Russia ever firing a shot or ever invading anyone, America at that point will claim what they'll say is, see, we told you that this was going to happen. Yeah, they didn't do it by military means. They weren't aggressive in the way that they did it, but they still did it. And that's how wily those Russians are. You see, they've screwed us over. So it's like, I don't know, it's, it's, it's Just bizarre. Like I, I totally, elections. yeah, I totally expect them to say that, you know, and it's like as the ship of state goes down below the waves in America, that'll be the last words on their lips. It'll be John McCain on top of the mast as the, only, as the last part of the ship that goes down, holding on to the American flag, uh, you know, screaming some kind of inco- incoherent babble interspersed with the word Russia and Putin. <laughs> and, and you know, Russia will be like, what? Well, okay, whatever. You know, see you later. And but that's, that's how insane it is, you know? I mean, that's, that's where it goes. And it's, for some reason, it's, it sticks in my mind as, as some kind of archetypal image of, or, or that dynamic being very well-known or very common uh, even amongst ordinary people in the world where, where people have had experiences of someone like that who who, who ex- refuses to accept reality and the changing situation in their environment, let's say, and in their position within, let's say, a community or in the family or whatever, and they eventually, they always turn around and claim that everybody's out to get them, right? And that everybody turned against them when that's never what happened, actually. They just refused to move the times. But they fought it and fought it and fought it and made more and more and more enemies such that they actually increased or speeded up their own their own kind of like isolation and own demise in that sense. Yeah. But when that happens, then they blame the other person or other persons saying that, see, you intended to do this to me all, all along. So it's a, I suppose it's just a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Which is pretty well known, the idea of a self-fulfilling prophecy, where if you don't catch yourself on and, and get a grip on things, you will actually be the architect of your own device because you refuse to accept a new reality or a new, you know, game plan or a new, a new set of uh, conditions. And it's sad to see it happening. I do see it happening over and over again. They're doing the same thing. So they're doing that in... in they have this anti-Russian hysteria, which is just to kind of, that's as good, that's all they've got. That's the best they've got is to send out regular dispatches from the State Department to the media organization saying, crank up the anti-Russian hysteria, look what Russia's doing. Because that's the only thing they can do against Russia is to try and demonize Russia in the face of, you know, making claims about what Russia is doing in the claim, in, in, in the face of objective facts to the contrary, will say it anyway. You know, make it up. Pretend that Russia is going to invade. Say that Russia is going to invade as part of these military drills. Say that they've got 10 times the amount of troops that they say that they have. And then when it doesn't pan out, well, you just, oh, well, whatever. Well, well, you just, you're happy because job done, right? Because you've cranked up the anti-Russia hysteria and you think that you've actually turned people in Europe and politicians in Europe against Russia and you've secured your position in Europe. 
But if you keep doing that and you keep falling flat in your face or keep being exposed, as you will do, as, as being a liar or, or demented or insane, because you keep saying these things that don't actually transpire, you keep making these, giving these warnings to the whole world that, that there's no evidence for them and they don't actually transpire, well, increasingly you're going to be seen as a crazy person who should not be listened to. When your goal is that these people must continue to listen to me and I have to force them to listen to me, but by trying to do that in that way, you increase the chances, you speed up the day when no one will listen to you anymore. And then you'll be able to say, well, you see, that's, that, that was the problem. That's what I was talking about all along. They were going to silence me. <laughs> no, you silenced yourself by being a freaking idiot. What is wrong with you? You know, and they're doing the same thing in China. You know, they're over here with North Korea. You know, uh, Pax Americana. You know, keep the world safe from crazy fat boy Kim Jong Un. You know, he's going to destroy the world. No, he's not going to destroy the world. What the hell are you talking about? You know, the only reason you're trumping up, pun intended, this ridiculous North Korea threat—they're going to nuke the world and stuff—is because they want to be in the Pacific. They want to do exactly the same thing as they've done in Europe using Russia. Now they're using. North Korea in the Pacific region to increase their military uh, uh, presence and to increase their political influence, they think or they hope, uh, against with uh, countries in South Asia for the purpose of keeping out, keeping China out of out yeah. of everywhere except China. And again, it's just a joke, you know. Uh, it's not going to happen. There's not going to be any nu- nuclear war with. Uh, with Kim Jong-un and with, uh, with North Korea. Because if America drops nukes on North Korea, they're going to radi- irradiate the entire population of South Korea as well, mm-hmm. including all the American soldiers in their military bases. They're going to make the whole country a waste, the whole peninsula, uh, a radioactive wasteland. Uh, so I don't think they're even crazy enough to do that, but they're, they're happy to ramp up the rhetoric over and over again. Uh and, and just so that's how they get to be there. That's how they get to send these massive amounts. I mean, increase their military presence in the in in, in the Pacific, which they are doing. And I think it was under Obama actually that they had a Obama had a a game plan for putting I think it was sixty percent of the U.S. naval capability in the Pacific by I don't know what year. And that's what they've been doing. They've been following this plan and pushing all these boats and ships. And this and this is what we speculated before. This is one of the reasons why they've been crashing their boats. Because they're shoving as many people in there as possible, many boats in there as possible, there's many captains who have done nothing previously. The only experience of these admirals, these captains of these ships has been to go for a little jaunt off the coast of California, you know, down to Baja, Mexico or something and back up. There you go, done, fire a few missiles off or test the radar, done. But now they're shoved into the the busiest shipping lanes in the world Mm. and they're meant to stay there and navigate, go back and forth, go here, go there, go everywhere, you know, make your presence felt and they're crashing their boats. In the dark. In the dark. and they're crashing boats. Yeah going sideways across across lines of traffic, you know, like, it's just, you know, so it's the same thing. It's a ruse. It's a theater, basically. You know, the Russian thing is complete another theater. The North Korea business is complete another theater. And it's, it's, it's a pathetic last desperate attempt by a dying empire to hold on to their positions of power. And unfortunately, in, in taking that approach... Uh, they're just going to they're just going to speed up their demise because they're going to be exposed as a bunch of crazy people. That thing with the ships, um, it's actually literally analogous for what's going on with New World Order as American Pax Americana. Mm-hmm. Um, they've got the ships there, and they're literally getting steamrolled by all this 
vast trade traffic. Right. That's that's the actual world order. Yeah. The 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 incredible volumes of trade, right? And then there's the new world order coming in and saying, no, 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 stop, everybody, stop. I'm the policeman. You back up there, back up. It's my turn. I'm crossing, <laughs> and then they just crash right and into it. Over, yeah. <laughs> and then, well, not not because they were they meant to. But they they couldn't see them because yeah. the American ships uh, fly, drive, yeah. uh, sail in the dark. Yeah, highly symbolic, you know. And it's like, uh, you know, don't play in the traffic, America, you know, because uh, it's dangerous, you know. But yeah, that's a good that's a good point, you know, that it's a really uh, very symbolic uh, event. Those those two uh, crashed of ships, which like killed soldiers, you know, or killed uh, sailors. Um, that uh, they're in there where they shouldn't be, and they get into an accident, you know, uh, because of all of this shipping. Uh, most of it going, coming and, and going to China, and they're over there to contain China. And China's breaking, China's too has, busy China's making too, money. Too <laughs> get out of the way. China's too busy to be contained. <laughs> and oops, sorry, I ran into your ship, you know. But you know, just watch where you're going next time. Stay out of the way, you know. Ah, oh, God. And they can't see it, you know. These people can't see it. So I mean, I don't know. I mean, we're not saying that it's just going to. We don't think that necessarily it's going to all you know, go away peacefully in that sense where for a start America it doesn't seem these these deep state characters in the US are of the of the mentality or of the of the psychological profile where they'll say, you know, maybe we should rethink this. Maybe it's not the best idea. Maybe you know, we've bit off more than we can chew. Maybe we've yeah, maybe we've gone a bit too far with our with our plans here. You know, they're not the type of people who do that. They're the type they're the type of people who will double down on it and come up with ever more complex and, you know, devious strategies to to win. To get what they want against all the odds, against reality, basically a massive big chunk of reality intruding, and they just they're fighting against it. So, I mean, we're not uh, putting any limits on what these people could do, um, but I think the main kind of line of force will be increasingly in in the near future will be that America will continue to be to suffer kind of defeats. Of one type or another, um, and uh, I think as, if they continue with this um, propaganda and you know ham-fisted attempts to deceive the public and convince everybody that they need America needs to be there against the evidence and against what's good, increasingly against what's good for the countries that they want to keep, like in Europe and in in Asia, that it's actually bad for these countries what America is doing. Uh, I think that increasingly more and more of the world will basically turn against America. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's very ripe for that to happen, particularly under Donald Trump, mm-hmm. because he's not the most liked president. You know, he's not the most diplomatic kind of guy. He is very brash and um, in your face. And uh, I mean, and there's a lot to be said for that kind of diplomacy, you know, uh, that he doesn't have those diplomatic skills that he completely lacks, really. Uh, there's a lot. They are very important, you know, um, because you kind of catch more, catch more flies with uh, with sugar or honey than than vinegar, you know. So, um, and I mean, you, you contrast him with someone like Putin or Lavrov, you know. Uh, not are those guys smart and know what's going on, but they're very well schooled in, in diplomacy and they smile and they're friendly to everybody. And Putin keeps on calling America our, our American partners, you know, no matter what they do to him or try to do to Russia, uh, he keeps on calling them partners, you know, because he's continuing to extend that 
hand of uh, of friendship and cooperation. If anybody is sane enough in America to, to if, if anybody ever comes along that's sane enough to to take that hand, but I'm sure they're they're very. Um, I'm sure that that just pisses them off when they hear him referring to them as partners, because that's by definition saying uh, we Russia are your equal, and they're saying no, you're not. You well, the- are dodgy, defunct Russia. At least you were 20 years ago when we planned to kind of basically subsume you into the empire and have you as a vassal state and leech all your resources. Um, Why aren't you there? Why didn't that happen? You were never never destined. As part of our new world order plan, you, Russia, were not destined to be our partner. We don't have any partners. We don't have any equals. That's why we are the exceptional nation. An exceptional nation does not have equal partners. What part of that aren't you understanding? We are the hegemon. You know what hegemon means? It doesn't say that there's there's not two hegemons. It's a unipolar world with America at the helm. That's the new world order. And all of this evidence that that is not happening and not going the way we had planned it to be is very, very frustrating to us. And it's Russian propaganda. And will you stop it, please? Yes, please stop it. And But the problem is that Russia and China and all those people have basically reality on their side. And reality is a pretty potent ally to have. America has fantasy. There's a very interesting uh, irony with uh, Trump, uh, and that is that, you know, this is ostensibly the first president in a long time who who wasn't on board with uh, humanitarian intervention and, and going around the world and and uh, and supporting the overthrow of governments. And now that he he's kind of capitulated to the deep state, they couldn't have a better blustering uh, mouthpiece that's reflective of of the kind of. Um, uh, true intention, with the possible exception of uh, of Russia. I mean, mm. in, in recent weeks, you know, we've heard about his uh, statements towards North Korea, towards Venezuela, uh, towards Iran. What a terrible nuclear deal uh, was made with Iran under Obama, and um, and he's he's so loud and obnoxious about the whole thing. Um, you know, it. it, it some people have speculated that Mike Kelly, his new chief of staff, was like holding his, his head in his hands during the UN speech. Um, you know whether or not that was a reaction to how blustery. Uh, well, it it may well have been because did you notice what Nikki Haley did afterwards? Did she applaud? Did she cry? No, no, no. After after the his UN speech, she, she made, made a statement. She made two statements directly contradicting what Trump had said, or at least this, directly contradicting the spirit of what Trump had said. Uh, Trump comes out and says at the UN, we're going to completely destroy North Korea. And then she comes out afterwards on the same day, I think, in news reports and said, uh, what the president said does not mean that we are not still going to pursue a diplomatic solution. Okay, so why did he say that then? Well, just for fun, whatever. And then on Iran, where he's saying Iran's a dictatorship, uh, uh, masquerading as... Blah 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 blah. You know, and the nuclear deal is terrible. And the nuclear deal is terrible. I'm going to back out of that. Uh, and she comes out again on the same day and says, "What the president said does not mean that we're going to back out of the Iranian deal." So why did he say that then? So uh, I'm not sure. I mean, maybe he's a perfect puppet in that sense, uh, but he doesn't seem to be um, a good, as good a puppet, for example, as as Obama. Mm-hmm. Because you know, all the ladies loved Obama, right? Angela Merkel, she loved him. She would have taken a back rub from him any day, you know. 
Um, and, <laughs> as opposed to W. As opposed to W. <laughs> but, um, oh, that was creepy. But, I mean, a lot of them don't seem to like Trump. You know, he's not, I mean, you do have to meet and greet people and kiss babies and, you know, press flesh and all that kind of stuff. And you have to do it in, in, in the accepted diplomatic way that these people, as hypocritical as they are, uh, still expect, you know. Um because everybody likes, everybody wants to keep their narratives intact, right? And we all have to make all the Western politicians have to make it look like they're all still uh, working for the, for the good of everybody, and, and they're all they're all well intentioned. So they have to uh, kind of have a uh, they have to mutually kind of massage each, massage each other in that way. Um, but Trump doesn't seem to be filling that bill, you know. So, and I don't think they want the, the, the U.S. deep state wants to dispense with that diplomatic offensive. Uh, in that sense, you know, they don't really want someone who's bluff and bluster and kind of like, we're going to blow the crap out of him and, and them and everybody else. And you better all watch out or it's going to be curtains for everybody, you know. Uh, I mean, what uh, I'm not sure what that achieves other than turning people, at least on a personal level, against uh, an interpersonal level against America and the American president as, as their representative, as a deep state's representative. Hmm. I just think we're in the position, you know, Wizard of Oz. Mm-hmm. I think we're in a in a protracted period now of that fairly short part of the movie at the end, where Toto goes over and he's pulling the curtain back on the on the on the wizard who's just this little old man uh, in a, at a machine, you know, behind a curtain, who's man who's you know pulling the levers and creating this uh, big scary face with flames and stuff. Um, I think we're in a kind of protracted period of, of that happening, you know, um, where America, as the, the great and powerful laws, is, is that curtain is being, Toto's pulling it back bit by bit, you know, and uh, and I don't think Trump's helping, you know, mm. uh, at this point in time, you know, but then, yes, I suppose once, you've, once you have a president in, in power, it's not that easy, especially if he's, has has kind of given in to the deep state. Uh, I'm not sure there's any point in in upsetting the apple cart and trying to get rid of them, right? But then there may be another agenda internally in the U.S. with Trump, you know? Who knows? I think these people just have lost the plot. To be honest, I'm going for the chaos thing. We're not going to be able. To, you're not going to make. We're not going to be able to make any sense out of any of it for very much longer. That's just going to be generalized chaos. Oh. Broadly speaking, that is, over the timescale of decades, I like the idea that um, 9-11 was done with a view to these long-term challenges to U.S. hegemony, particularly from China. There is some evidence that um, some top strategists in the Pentagon, there are a few really obscure offices that are like, Office of Policy Coordination or something. Um, some guy called Andrew Marshall. I think it's Andrew Marshall. Certainly Marshall anyway. He was, or still is, alive, I think. He's like 90-some. They call him Yoda. Apparently, he's a genius strategist. Decades ago, he was warning that China would rise up and be a problem and how it would be offset. It. And no doubt they came up with ideas and put things into place they had at least some eye on it. I don't buy the idea that the U.S. was suddenly caught, surprised, like five years ago when Xi Jinping came to power. Um, no, no, they would have seen this kind of thing. And then they would have tried to 
budget for it. But here's the thing with China. I think that it's too big for them. It's reality is just too damn big. China is for United States population-wise, for them industrializing in a quarter of the time it took the United States to do so, which was the U.S. had set the bar high and no one was ever, well, China's beating that in terms of how fast and how expansive it is just economically. Um, and it's partly strategy reasons on China's part, but it's also partly because they've nothing else to do with their money. They're thinking long-term, they're investing abroad. They're massively going for mergers and acquisitions of already existing assets in the West and all over the world. Um, most times you hear people forecast, well, when will be the moment China will overtake the US economically? They give some far off dates, you know, but they're actually probably wrong for two reasons. One, it depends on what economic, um, econometric definition you use. Technically, if you use GDP based on um, purchasing power, China's already overtaken um, the U.S. It's only because of the nominal value, say, of the stock exchange in the U.S., the nominal values of the dollar relative to yuan and so on, other things, that on paper, the U.S. is still great. Mm. Um, that's a lot, that has a lot to do with America's reputation around the world right. as well. Uh, if you have kind of, if, I mean, it, it, seems a bit of, it seems a bit strange that uh, someone's, uh, the global population's feeling, or let's say particularly in Western Europe or in other kind of developed countries, uh, the feeling of the population or the press that a president gets or that America gets because their president has, uh, that, that, that if there's a negative feeling about the president and therefore about America, that that would really have a kind of like almost direct but indirect infl- uh, effect on the American economy. You know, it's, it's obviously there's very many different, many, it's very complex and there's many uh, layers of separation between the two, but I think it does actually have an effect, you know, that America has uh, subsisted for, uh, in large part or has, has um, succeeded in large part based on its reputation and the propaganda, the message that it puts out there and the image that it has in the world. And of course, it needs to be able to back up that image, but there's only a certain amount of backing up you have to do uh, before the image becomes self-perpetuating. And everybody just assumes that America is this shining beacon of et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But when that starts to get uh, broken down and, and starts to kind of become a bit threadbare and gets worn down, um, I would imagine that that could have uh, a direct or indirect uh, effect on on America's economic standing, particularly in the context of opposing forces like from China and Russia uh, coming in at the same time as America's reputation starts to go downhill at the same time you have it in re- very real economic terms taking a beating, you know? Yeah. Um, I suspect that the Russians would not have um, taken a stand in, over Crimea and the Ukrainian coup if they didn't know that after the U.S. reaction, sanctions, they could follow up with a half trillion dollar energy deal in the east with China mm. and everything that would come from it because their attitude just towards sanctions has been whatever mm-hmm. but they would have known that that was logically going to follow and they could only have done it with China's backing mm-hmm. tacit 
major economic. When you have this kind of uh, alternative source of cash resources in the world, everything changes because mm-hmm. you've got options now. Yeah. I mean, I think the whole, like you talked about an analysis of so this guy who, you know, an analysis in, in the Pentagon, you know, plan, you know, foresaw the rise of uh, China a long time ago. It, it, I don't think you have to be a genius to do that. No. You just not have to be blinkered by your own exceptionalism and thinking that you're going to rule the world unimpeded forever. I mean, how difficult would it have been in the 70s to see China's population predict where it's going to grow to, i.e. like today, 1.5 billion people, uh, and understand as well that, say in the 70s, you had really the, the beginnings of the proliferation of technology all around the world and project that 30, 40 years ahead, like today, and see that, well, everybody's going to have this technology. This technology is going to revolutionize rev- uh, revolutionize the um, uh, the global economy and, and countries all around the world as they get increasingly get access to this technology and be able to have indigenous technology and produce all of their own, everything they need for themselves, including military uh, equipment. I mean, how hard was it to envision that that was obviously going to happen? How, how are you going to stop it? How are you going to stop China with 1.5 billion people and as much technology as America has from becoming a competitor and uh, and besting the U.S. in terms of resources, population, uh, and economically. Uh, how are you going to stop that from happening and, and them having their own interests, them deciding, the Chinese people deciding, or the Chinese government deciding that, well, you know what, America, we're more interested in our interests than your interests. No, they would never do that, would they? How are you going to how are you going to stamp out Chinese Chinese nationalism or nationalism in any country? And how are you going to stop that nationalism from becoming a competitor to American hegemony when you add in uh, the, the 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 capability that technology provides to any country with significant resources and a, pop- a significant population? Uh, what were they all just going to see it as self-evident that the whole world, regardless of how capable any other country in the world was, that they should always just accept America as the bestest, best country that ever existed, and we should always all play, you know, second fiddle to to America because America basically is that is that their was that the rationale? I mean, it just seems like so, so much, uh, a massive amount of, of uh, self-delusion and wishful thinking. And I mean, really, I'm at a loss to explain how these great minds in the Pentagon were unable to see that fairly simple progression of events that has happened. No, I, I don't think that they, they, they don't understand that. I mean... Um at the turn of the 19th, 20th century, it was well understood that the yellow peril exists, that if China ever broke out, um, its population, its potential, then, you know, it would be a serious, serious problem for the order as, as it existed then. As far back as Napoleon, he's, he's Napoleon Bonaparte is alleged to have said, you know, let China sleep because when she awakes, you know, there'll be some major dragon. <laughs> well, yeah. So, uh, yeah, let's just keep it keep it at bay. Um, everyone understands the, the potential 
in theory, but I suppose when it's actually happening in reality, it's uh, it, it they don't acknowledge while well, it's happening now. How do we accommodate it? There's this, like you described, there's this mentality or idea that's so fixed they will go down with the ship. Um, and they'll blame Russia for it, which will be ironic because I think it's really China is the, the power here. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, America has a lot to complain about in the sense that they created this globalized world, right? Or they're largely responsible for the creation of a globalized, interconnected economic world, uh, despite the fact that it was a lot of it uh, involved abuses and uh, oppression and wars and stuff but they've created this interconnected globalized world and then uh it just as it just as as it kind of took form fully and the whole world's interconnected economically and all that kind of stuff um and technology wise then russia just happened at that point to come of age and say oh thanks very much we're going to use your globalized world to basically take it over not take it over but to spread or influence all around the world. Thanks very much. And the, the, the key... It's not the way it was meant to happen, you know? The key foundation, the, the, the platform on which Woodrow Wilson could get up there in 1916 initially and then after the war with his 14 points and become de facto and looked up to as the moral arbiter of world events, of geopolitics. Mm. The platform was that... Um, I've just read a book about it, about how the global financial architecture was radically changed by the war. Mm. Um, the former banking powerhouses of Frankfurt, um, it is again today, but at the time, Frankfurt, Paris, London was changed to New York, Wall Street. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a very interesting reason why they broke with tradition. The US had basically ended up funding all sides in World War One, mm. And at the I'm end of it, they, then again, the Basically, the process repeated, but for the first time, there was no war debt cancellation between friends. The U.S. was like, no, y'all are going to pay us. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, but that completely changed everything because that just left them like uh, – and the, the book's fascinating because it gives you some of the sort of things that were said by European leaders at the time. They basically collectively went, slapped their foreheads and said, we are so screwed. <laughs> we We have to accept this because – the only other option is total war. And that mm. did actually later happen. In, in, in the context of looking at it like this, this historian, uh, uh, Adam Adam Tews, he, he describes um, Mussolini, the revanchist Japanese um, government of the 1930s, and Hitler, as as they saw it at the time, they were insurgents against this one world order, this new world order, mm-hmm. um, because they just could not... Uh, now, of course, Hitler is infamous for portraying it exclusively, and, you know, it's the Jews, but really the the, the, the overall structure he was pointing out was the Anglo-Saxon Western U.S. now centered on Wall Street, mm-hmm. global financial architecture. So that was the, the underlying reason that they could get up there and proclaim their great ideas and mm-hmm. have have enough have quite a lot of people for a long time, a hundred years basically, and believe in that mm-hmm. idea that the US is the shining city on the hill. Every dog so has its day. What's changing today? Well, on that level, it's changing big time. The petrodollar, which has held it up since the nineteen seventies, is teetering. Mm-hmm. And when that platform goes, I think it's gonna it's gonna both are in tandem. Mm-hmm. You see the curtain pulling back and people seeing the lies. Mm-hmm. 
in tandem with seem, faith in the right. credit of the U.S. dollar going, whoa. It all seems to go wrong at the at the same time. Yeah. For for these people who who kind of set themselves up in that way as the as the the only show in town, you know. Uh, we have a call, Harrison. Yeah. Yep. Uh, we've got Stephen on the line. Uh, Stephen, are you there? Stephen, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yeah, bit of echo, yeah, but, bit of echo but just go ahead and talk. Okay, yes. Yeah, I just wanted to clarify. Uh, you guys mentioned me le- in last week's show. Um, another ah, thing I would like ah. to clarify, i just like to clarify, I did not vote for Trump, but I did want Trump to win over Clinton. Okay. Okay. Okay, Thanks just for, for the record. Let the record show. Yes, and um, I, I still am, I still am uh, happy that Trump won over Clinton. And, um, you know, I don't, it's it's I, I'm really of so many mixed minds about Trump. Um, I actually think he's doing a great service to the anti-imperialists, which I am among that number. Um, it's like uh, the United States, and this is not Trump's fault, by the way. The United States just it's in a position where it can't do anything to bolster its status as superpower without actually undermining its status as a superpower at the same time. So this is a right. classic contradiction paradox that, that we are living right now with Trump as president. Yeah. Yeah. And um, in the situation with, um, you know, they've driven um, started with starting with Obama, they've driven China and Russia closer together. Um, there's moves right now. Uh, you see little blurbs here and there how these powers are delinking from the dollar, starting to trade oil and, and other currencies beside the U.S. dollar. So, you know, slowly everything is building. Um, uh, Trump um, in the United States are actually um, they're trumped with respect to North Korea. Um and um, there's nothing they can do uh, as aggression toward North Korea that would would in any way um, have the United States come out on top of the situation. Um, I've watched I've watched China and Russia, and they've been really remarkably um, they've been remarkably silent in the face of United States blundering. Which, um, if somebody who's your foe is making um, you know horrible decisions and all of that. You don't come out and tell them like that they're doing that. You just let them continue on, right? And um, right. with Syria, uh, with Europe, um, with Latin America, um, let the people of Latin America, you know, despise Trump in general. They despise Trump, and um, so I think that you know tr- Trump probably has good intentions, but he's just not that smart. And he really does represent um, the American, the general stupidity and arrogance of Americans in in the United States at this juncture. And I'm not hating him for it because it it is what it is. But um, I I wanted I'm going to hang up in a second. But I wanted you I wanted you you guys' thoughts on this whole situation with the uh, the the professional sports stars. Trump has went Trump has went out of his way to provoke these people and I'm one of the people that I've I've always um supported Colin Kaepernick 
in his, and I've always thought that he was very brave and courageous with his stance. And, um, you know, you may or may not, you may be suspicious of Black Lives Matter, which I am. And I see a lot of manipulation on these uh, protesters on the so-called left. But um, I think that the conversation about patriotism and public displays and reciting the pledge and all of that, I think that this is long, long overdue. And um, my position is um, similar to Colin Kaepernick. Um, I will not get up and participate in public displays of my loyalty until the United States better um, represents the ideals that we're, we supposedly espouse that in mm. um, free speech, freedom of speech um, is something that is one of the best ideals that are represented in our in our Constitution. However imperfect it ever is in, in, in actually uh, engaging that everything that you do, you're going to piss people off. You're going to have to suffer consequences from it. And that's just the way it's always been in every human society. But I just want to, I'm going to hang up now, but I wanted you, you guys to get you guys' take on all this brouhaha. All right. All right. All right. Thanks, Thanks, David. Thanks, David. All right, thank you. you. Bye-bye. Okay, we should probably fill in um, non-American audience about that situation. So Colin Kaepernick is an American football player. Um, last season, the new season just started, but last season he started a trend where he would take the knee, which at the beginning of the game, the U.S. anthem is played and everyone puts their hand on the heart and sings the anthem or just stands in respect. And he would go down on one knee um, as a protest in support of Black Lives Matter slash um, perceived or real um injustice against black Americans by the police in the U.S. So Trump this week weighed in heavily by, uh, I think, at another rally um, saying Alabama. I was the owner of a fo- this football team or a football team and my players started doing that, I would fire them. I would say, you're fired. Um, so as you can imagine, it's a divisive um Issue. Although I, I suspect Trump said that knowing that actually a majority of Americans, certainly of the football watching types, are against these protesting players and are disgusted with their behavior. Well, yeah. Where do we stand on that? I, I agree with Stephen that uh, <clears throat> I think uh, he has people like that, people like that Copernica has uh, uh, have every right to do that. And, and this whole kind of like support the flag, support America, come what may, regardless, whatever uh, is nonsense. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a mind job. You know, people should not be forced or cowed or, or manipulated or shamed into never, um, you know, uh, questioning the moral goodness or, or rightness of their, um, of their nation and what it represents. If they come across material that is pretty, pretty objectively immoral, in terms of what their country does or what is done in the name of the American people. And if the upholders or the, the standard bearers or whatever of, of, of America and of, of the American flag are this political elite, if they're the ones who represent uh, America on the world stage, and if they're doing things that are immoral, then I think every American has the right to turn around and say, well, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not standing up for that flag if that's what it represents. If those are the people who hold the flag, basically, and who represent the flag and us, and if I don't think 
if I don't like what they're doing and if what they're doing is objectively immoral, then I'm not going to. I'm going to make make that known. I mean, it's far better than that someone at least would would uh, would bring that up in that way, and more people should bring it up and question uh, American kind of America's role in the world and even what's going on domestically in America, and and, and highlight the the problems with the official narrative of America is the greatest country in the world at home and abroad, and say, well, actually, no, it's not, you know. And for someone to be de- demonized simply for saying saying that is is nonsense because what's the alternative the alternative is that everybody must ignore uh everything they, that that they come across if they see something they come across that's that they don't like about american society or what america has done and then it's fundamentally criminal or corrupt you meant to say well don't say anything about that because because america because the american flag and you should be patriotic patriotic to what what are you being patriotic to you know I mean, and yeah, it might be difficult because you say, well, this is the only country I have, so I'm, I don't really want to diss the country that I live in type thing. Well, yeah, it's a, it's a difficult question, but it's a bit of a thorny issue. But, you know, you got to take a stand one way or the other. And I think fundamentally uh, people should always take a stand for or stand for their conscience or, or side with their conscience over some ideas of, uh, of, of fanciful ideas of, of patriotism and, and nationalism, you know. Because they really are kind of uh, pretty, uh, you know, they're not very real or practical, you know. I mean, I mean, I know it's 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 difficult in the U.S. where you know a high percentage of the population has uh, has an American flag hanging out their window or, or standing up on a pole in, in their driveway type thing, and, and and that really I don't think that should be that way, you know. Um, but I don't think I don't I I see I think it's better that people would. Uh, protest in that way when they have something that they themselves have see as see as wrong or corrupt about America, or certainly not in keeping with the idea of America's wonderful. They should be allowed to um, make as many people as possible aware of their feelings, without, on it, and then you can have discussion without effectively suffering sanctions. Should he be fired? I mean, well, no, but that may be the price price to pay. You know, I mean, he shouldn't be fired. Certainly not. But if that's the, if that's the price you pay, then you can make that decision yourself. You know, but ultimately, people will let should let their conscience guide them in everything, and in that way, kind of you know, think about it, uh, think about the repercussions, and and make the decision. You know, it's it's not an easy decision to make, but you should make one. You should make it. You know, and I mean, I think that guy. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily. I mean, people can do it locally, where where they don't have a, have a wide audience, and they can just feel good about the fact that they 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 went with their conscience, you know. Uh, locally, you know, where they might like, I'm not going to put a flag up in my on my house anymore, you know. And your neighbors might not like you for it, you know, or something like that. But you might feel uh, justified and 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 at least you know holding the moral high ground type thing if if that's what floats your boat. But certainly for someone like uh, that football player taking that action he knew it was going to have a, a yeah. wide audience and have an, an effect on a lot of people and and fundamentally I think he was questioning uh, the official narrative of everything's cool in America when it's not uh, and he was saying that so what's wrong with that yeah the irony there is that it's free speech and that's one of the uh, one of the things that we tout about the United States of America, our freedoms of, of free speech and assembly, and, and we could say whatever we want here without getting thrown in prison. But um, 
uh, I was once at a college commencement uh, ceremony and um, the Pledge of Allegiance uh, or the National Anthem was played. And um, this was a very long time ago and, and I didn't stand for it. And uh, some guy next to me said, it's, it's customary to stand up when the American flag and the anthem is being played. And uh, I just kind of nodded and continued to sit there. So, uh, yeah, I mean, there's this, there's this, uh, this contradiction. Uh, people can't leave well enough alone if they're, if they're programmed to blindly, uh, accept, uh, patriotism as, as standing up when the, when the national anthem is being played. I mean, that, you know, someone said that the, the strongest display of patriotism is, is being able to, to speak out against, um, you know, your government's policies and things that you're seeing are going wrong. So, uh, yeah, just an interesting yeah. contradiction there. And, and I wonder, I, I wonder if Trump is just trying to gain some brownie points with, uh, mm -hmm. people by saying such a thing, um, pondering to, pondering to his base. No. Yeah. So. Not that his yeah. base means much to him anymore, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, what about the, he's got, he's got new friends. Go has ahead. there been any, has there been any news on, whether these uh, these players taking the knee has um, affected the the ownership, like the owners and like the their revenue stream at all, like is viewership yeah. down? Viewership's way down. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's, well, it's so then, so that that brings in another angle to it is how much how much uh, how many rights do business owners have to fire employees who you know bring down their regular levels of income, you know, for saying or doing things that uh, may be protected right. under free speech, but which uh, right. you know, are controversial. Right. It's not, very, it's not, it's not, it's not too simple. You know, it's a pretty no. complicated situation. And ultimately, like that's what I said, when someone does like that, like that Copernic guy did, uh, mm -hmm. ultimately that's uh, he needs to, if he's if he's smart, he'll have weighed up all of the pros and cons mm -hmm. and, and the repercussions that that yeah. that he would be subjected to. Uh, one of them being that he could be fired and lose his job and stuff. But if if your if your stand means enough to you, then and you're willing to accept that, then then go ahead. You know, I don't yeah. know. It's all a bit ac academic at this point, anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So anyone well, want to do? Go ahead. Any, anyone want to do any more? Um, crystal ball gazing we, we, we offered that to listeners <laughs> that we would predict what moves on the grand chessboard might be expected hmm. any, I, any, any specifics we've covered China and the, the mm -hmm. kind of major shock that will come from the money issues um, in specifics something I thought of is Afghanistan mm. with Syria sort of contained if you like um, We've noticed that this revitalization of the war in Afghanistan, which is totally a phony because, you know, the Taliban surrendered within months of the invasion back in 2001 or two. Um, but uh, I came across this Russian TV report. Um, I think it was translated and put up by Russia Insider. So you might find it on, on, on their YouTube channel. It was pretty interesting because it, it outlined this potential scenario, which I imagine was fed by Intel or some insider info. So they showed they showed Afghanistan and how most of the major U.S. bases there, they form a kind of half circle about halfway from west to east, about halfway down the country. 
Um, and the idea that they floated in this report was that the U.S. is coming in to sort of from that line push northwards and herd whatever forces they have or antagonize different warlords, I guess, and get them to flare up and spread over the borders into the Central Asian stands. Um, that's actually something that's been talked about by the Russians for a few years. Um, they conducted major war exercises on that basis with with those same countries um, about the, the, the eruption, potential eruption of Islamist um, Syria type situations flaring up all across Central Asia. So that could be the next um, major conflict zone. Mm. And it has import because if Russia successfully replicates what they've done in Syria there too. They, they won't just beat, beat, beat back and put out this fire. But every time you see, every time that tactic is used, it becomes weaker the next time. Mm-hmm. And as a result, the U.S. becomes weaker. I don't think, I think from a prediction point of view, I don't think there's really much, uh, there's nothing going to happen in North Korea. It's going to kind of peter out. It's going to go away. Um, nothing really going to happen in, in Asia in the sense of um, certainly nothing to affect uh, to in fact, China, you might have some jihadi cells appearing in different uh, smaller uh, Southeast Asian or South Asian countries, but nothing that there's there's really nothing that America can do militarily against China, and that includes uh, like uh, proxy jihadi forces. So they would be snuffed out pretty quickly. Uh, the same applies to Russia. Uh, that there's nothing you can do against Russia in that respect, militarily, overtly, or uh, with proxy forces. I think the we can expect the the kind of U.S. deep state to fall back on uh, uh, trying to protect as much as possible and control and contain uh, their power in, in the place that they have most influence, which is Europe. So we can we can expect, obviously, and it's not much of a prediction, but we can expect that jihadist terror attacks to continue uh, in Europe. Um, in America, we've got three more years of Trump. It's possible that There'll be more flare-ups, more police brutality. I mean, these are things that you can expect anyway, stuff that has been going on, but you can expect it to to, to get worse and worse. Basically, the general, the general prognosis, I think, is of America continuing to kind of fall apart, from its, fall, fall from its pedestal in many different ways and become increasingly uh, viewed around the world as a, as, as a kind of has-been and that to be and that to manifest in in kind of failures or you know uh, crumbling of, of of America's prestige in the world, both at home and abroad, uh, and, and not in league with, but uh, happening at the same time as continued jihadi attacks. In fact, being that that fall in, in prestige being uh, negatively correlated with jihadist attacks in the sense that uh, the more it falls in prestige, the more kind of terror attacks and that kind of thing that you have have happened. In America, you may have more, more of those kind of. You may have an uptick in that kind of stuff in, in the U.S. You know, um, I kind of, not that it's really happened so far, but you may have some uh, jihadi attacks in the U.S., which you really haven't had very much of. Not kind of directly linked. It's been mostly kind of uh, uh, mass shooting events that weren't directly necessarily linked with uh, jihadis and. Of course, there's a whole environmental thing which is going to play a part as well. Mm. I mean, it's been rocking and rolling 
earthquake-wise along that east coast of of the Americas of late. Um, it's a bit west ominous. But, sorry, west coast. Um, yeah, Mexico City. Yeah, Mexico. and That wasn't even a direct hit. No, California as well, a couple of nights ago. Northern California. So, do you think the EU will survive this? Intact? At all, I don't know. Because, I mean, if you think about the last two conflagrations, they were centered on Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, this time around. Mm. Um, I think the other thing I would say, just before we go to that, would be uh, Africa. you probably see a... Uh, to some extent, uh, an up, upswing or an uptick in jihadi movements in Africa, particularly in nations. If you do a little bit of background checking, you'll see that the, they're in nations where that China is actively developing uh, economic ties with. You'll see uh, Al Shabaab and what's the other group called? Al Kabab. Al Kabab and uh, Boko The Boko Haram. The Boko, Boko Al Shabaab and it's the Haram of jihadis. Boko Taco. Uh, yeah, going on in different African countries. But again, it'll come to naught. I bet they'll fizzle out of the first challenge, just like in Syria. They'll try. But, um, yeah, it's all nowhere to go but down from here, really. Well, speaking of nowhere to go go but down, the big question on everyone's mind that everyone wants to know is who's going to win the German election? Merkel. Going to be Merkel. It's going to be Merkel because. Oh, I better not say anything that will. Okay, <laughs> caught out here. It's, it's, I, I think it's going to be Merkel because Germany, Germany's economy grew all those years. Mm. They, they took a small hit like everyone else in 2008, but then it continued growing. And the bottom line is money rules the world, so people do well. Why change it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. People like stability. You notice the Germans don't get criticized for having, in their case, the chancellor, the leader, elected four times in a row. Mm-hmm. It's not a dictatorship. Hmm? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, it's already, there's no point in predicting. It's already a done deal. Merkel's won. Has she? Oh, there you go. But the uh, AFD made uh, significant games, gains. Um, that's Schultz, Martin. No, AFD is the... Uh, Alternative, Alternative for Deutschland make, made, uh, they got 13, 14%. So again, that's indicative of a nationalistic trend uh, in, in Europe. And then the second party, Martin Schulz got about 21, 22%, and then Merkel's on about 35. So 35, 22, and the, the Nazi party is on 14. I mean, the AFD. <laughs> Joe, was that a 14 slip? No. <laughs> <laughs> And then a bunch of other also runs, but thirty-three percent isn't isn't that? Uh, I mean, she's going to have to go into uh, some kind of coalition, no? Um, I think the way it works in Germany, that gives her outright chancellorship. But yeah, there's some kind of coalition some of, kind the, of, deal. of the lander. Yeah. Right. Um, so yeah, no and, change there. And what about Catalonia? First October, I'm not sure what to make of Catalonia because. Um, it, well, it's getting a lot of hype as well as yeah. a lot of kickback. It's getting kickback naturally from Madrid. Is it, then it's getting a lot of fluffy, liberally... It's on the 1st of October, no? Cosmopolitan hype. Uh, I don't like that. It gives me a weird taste in the mouth, you yeah. know? 
Yeah, well, we'll talk about that next week because that'll be the day they will may or may not will or won't be having the referendum uh, next mm-hmm. Sunday. So, um, well, same we'll with uh, Iraqi Kurdistan, right? Isn't that supposed to be right. today or tomorrow? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Twenty sixth. Uh, I think, I think right? they yeah. cancelled it once Washington said no. I, well, everybody was, they haven't cancelled it officially yet, but everybody says don't do it. Yeah, it's a bad idea. Uh, but they claimed they might go ahead with it anyway. But yeah, we can talk about that next week as well, depending on whether or not it happened. But I think we'll leave it there for this week, folks. All right. Yes? Yes. All right. Okay. Well, thanks for listening, guys. And thanks to Stephen for calling in. Thanks for Stephen for calling in. Call, I hope you enjoyed the show. Um, we'll be back next week with another one on another topic. Until then, have a good evening. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.